0: Julia, I feel weirdly nervous. You're muted. Uh, How much did you just say to me that, like, was, <laughs> like, either reassuring or super <laughs> condescending in the past thirty seconds?
1: It wasn't condescending. <laughs> I never say condescending thanks to you.
0: That's Julia. She's a writer, researcher, my personal tormentor, and the producer on this podcast. By the way, we have a producer now. I know, right? So, um, are, are you recording?
1: So should I start? Yes.
0: <laughs> Always be recording. A-B-R.
1: That's illegal in some places.
0: Do you, are, you, are you a Celtics fan because of Boston?
1: Right. So it's not, I don't know, I can't, I don't see it as a fandom. It's like, I'm not a fan of my parents. You know, they're just there.
0: So the Celtics are the same as your parents, <laughs> They exist, they provide you sustenance on occasion, (laughs) the rest of the time it's just angst and genetics. They are matter, Yeah, and that's it. And that's Joshy, he's the reason we have a Julia. He co-owns a company called Faculty, which is where I work as a creative director. And this whole thing was kind of his idea. Joshy, two and a half months ago, we were talking about wanting to do something in sports, and. Um yes. You had this, like, really, really great idea. Can you describe the idea? I
2: always watched sports. Then everything stopped. And thinking back through, what, Vietnam War, World War II, there's always been sports for us to, you know, just get lost in. And this is the first time where there wasn't any of that. It all just collapsed.
0: And my, my recollection is that, and then you had this idea of, if I had known that was the last sports I was going to watch for months and months and months, what would I have paid attention to? Well, I'm glad you remembered. because I-, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so what would we notice? What would we care about? What do we miss? We went back to watch the last soccer, hockey game, preseason baseball, cricket, and the last basketball games played before the world shut down. Teams we didn't care about, sports that we didn't always follow, sport for the sake of sport doing what it does best, reflecting society's greatest flaws and greatest achievements. And this season is all about what we learned. So, from faculty, this is first time, long time, stories about sports for people that may not like sports. I'm Aaron Wolf. And we're gonna start with a basketball game played between the Denver Nuggets and the Dallas Mavericks. The game that ended it all. The first 11 days of March 2020 lasted about five years. On March 1st, New York saw its very first confirmed infection of the novel coronavirus, which we would eventually start calling COVID-19. The governor, Andrew Cuomo, said to CNN that there was no need to be concerned. Across the country, only 80 people had contracted the infection. Two people in Washington state had died. Worldwide, there were 90,000 cases and 3,000 fatalities. By March 2nd, the death toll was six in the United States. And President Trump asked the medical community if they could use the flu vaccine to battle coronavirus. On March 3rd, NBA players were told to stop giving high fives to fans. On March 4th, California registered its first death. On March 5th, the New York Times posted an article titled How Worried Should You Be About the Coronavirus? In it, the author writes, Even in a global pandemic, it's expected to kill fewer people than the flu virus. By March 6th, the United States had conducted 2,000 coronavirus tests. South Korea had conducted 140,000. On March 7th, six days after its first case, New York Governor Cuomo declared a state of emergency. The case load in New York was now almost 90. On March 8th, the entire country of Italy was shut down. On March 9th, hospitals in New York City began running out of masks. Toilet paper was impossible to find. On March 10th, there was 1,000 cases in the United States. On March 11th, Tom Hanks announced that he and his wife had tested positive, the WHO declared a global pandemic, and the Dallas Mavericks played the Denver Nuggets at the American Airlines Arena. Today is July 31st. It's about four months later. I'm recording this in Western Massachusetts in a closet. The number of dead in the United States just passed 150,000. Infections are spiking all over the country. But back then, despite the run-up, it all felt distant. Okay, on March 10th, we got an email from our co-working space that said, Due to the increasing and pervasive impact of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, in our city and the local community, we've decided to cease on-site business operations effective tomorrow, Wednesday, March 11th, through Sunday, March 22nd we decided that we were not going to stop coming into the office, that this was felt distant and, and odd, but not part of our world.
1: Correct. And when we went in on Wednesday, I was expecting the staff to not be there, but I remember they were still there. And I think that day they ordered pretzels, but it was before, <laughs> before they decided to shut down. So they were kind of jokingly like, take one at your own risk.
0: Did you take a pretzel?
1: We both took a pretzel. I remember it felt, um, it felt sort of like, it felt strange, but in a sort of like, I don't want to say delightful, but in a sort of curious way, as in, I wonder what will happen next.
3: Yes, there is certainly a different feel tonight as we welcome you to NBA courtside. Fans being handed...
0: As the broadcast begins, Ryan Rocco, the commentator, stands on the court as the crowd filters in. He's taking the classic pre-game position as he describes the matchups, lays out the narrative for the story you're about to watch. Both the Dallas Mavericks and the Denver Nuggets are playing for a playoff spot, and it's getting kind of late in the season. But it's really just a normal game. There's not much truly on the line. And yet, immediately, there's something different about this broadcast. There's a kind of weird buzz.
2: It was this kind of... This kind of air of what's going to happen. Something could happen, but no one knew what was going to happen because it was unprecedented.
0: That's Mike Singer.
2: Uh, My name is Mike Singer. Uh, I'm the Denver Nuggets beat writer for the Denver Post.
0: On March 11th, Mike went down to Dallas to cover the game. And just like we saw on the broadcast, right away he noticed that something was very different about this game.
2: What was interesting was a day or two before the NBA had implemented uh these social distancing rules. So, we walk into this like auxiliary room at the American Airlines Center in Dallas. It's me, then there's one other guy who's who travels for the media, then there's some of the team media is there. Coach comes in and he goes, "Man, this is weird." And we it was it was weird for all of us.
0: W- were you I mean, it was still really early days. Were you worried at all?
2: So, I'm trying to remember so all right, you have your pregame warmups and I remember sitting there on the pre-game warmups and I don't know if you've like looked at how the media seating works, but I was sitting about three rows up uh, in Dallas and the media seating is crunched. so I have like literally just like elbow to elbow room and the best visual I can give you, I swear to God, I'm sitting on one side of the court. On the other side of the court, as the game has started, there's a guy, he's he's only, he's by himself, he's wearing a mask and he has gloves on at a game. And it's like, if you're that concerned, why are you here? And if there's a guy wearing a mask with gloves, should we be playing right now?
0: In the beginning, I didn't wear a mask, no one did. On a flight to Hawaii a few weeks before the Dallas game, one guy had a mask on. I thought he was creepy. And then there's this. A month or so before the last game, Julia and I drove down to New York City for a work thing. And even though I was completely cavalier about the whole situation, Julia was scared.
1: Yeah, I was afraid. I was afraid of the car ride, for sure. I remember the night before I texted a friend saying, is it offensive if I wear a face mask with just 2 coworkers in a car? And she was like, no, I don't think that's offensive.
0: But you didn't wear it.
1: It seemed unnecessary.
0: Back then I would have thought she was crazy. Now it seems nuts that I wasn't freaking out all the time. What were your impressions when you looked back at the game?
1: It's kind of like it's kind of like watching a bad horror movie <laughs> where there's all these like stereotypes of like don't answer the phone <laughs> or like don't don't go into the woods at night. Yeah, it felt like that.
0: Don't, don't high five each other. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: The other the other visual that I forgot to mention is that uh, when fans were, were filtering into American Airlines arena, they were passing out hand sanitizer. And I remember thinking that, oh, I mean, we're passing out hand sanitizer now. What what else should they have been passing out? Masks N ninety fives. Plex, PPE, the plexiglass. Like, what would have been a, a rational giveaway at that game?
3: A couple of Serbians jumping it up. Tonight's game also
2: available in Spanish on ESPN Deportes.
0: Despite all the efforts at normalcy from the broadcasters, it's impossible to rewatch the first few minutes of the game without being completely distracted by how many people are crammed into a relatively tiny space.
2: To begin
0: About a month into quarantine, my wife and I were watching some TV show, I don't remember what it was, and in one scene, a character goes to a grocery store and has an argument with another character. It's an unremarkable scene, except that they're having this conversation in front of the toilet paper shelves. And Naomi bursts out laughing in a way that only she can, sort of on the verge of tears. And she says, there's so much toilet paper, it's practically pornographic. That's what it's like to watch the last basketball game before lockdown. people are high-fiving, drinking beer, laughing, rubbing elbows. It's impossible not to think that in just a few weeks they will, like the rest of us, have a perfect mental picture of what six feet looks like. They will move through the world like we do, positively charged magnets repelling each other. They will watch this game back like I did, horrified and amazed by how we once lived.
4: Watching the game.
0: That's Sydney. My
4: name is Sydney Myers. I'm the co-founder of DallasHoopsCast.com. That's a Dallas Mavericks blog.
0: Sydney didn't go to the game, but she watched from home.
4: Right about at the end of the first quarter, so we're 12 minutes into the game, we started hearing that... Another game was about to start between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Utah Jazz.
0: Okay, this is a little bit confusing, but here's the deal. Shortly after the game that I was watching started in Dallas, there was another game in Oklahoma City that was scheduled to begin. But moments before the tip-off in Oklahoma City, the team doctor runs out on the court and says something to the officials, and then suddenly, all the players just head back to their locker rooms. No game, no explanation. No one knows what's happening. But meanwhile, in Dallas, the score is 33-29, a close game, a good game. Dallas is winning. Everything proceeds as though normal until the start of the second quarter. Listening back to my game, there's this odd moment when the broadcast clearly cuts away to a field reporter in Oklahoma City who's trying to explain what's happening. But in a weird quirk of national broadcasting rights and replays and who knows what else, the replay that I'm watching doesn't have that field report. It just stays with the Dallas game, but there's no commentators, just the sounds of the game. You hear the squeak of the sneakers, the hum of the crowd, the ball in the net, but no commentators. It's eerie, as though something terrible has happened, but no one in the main office has figured it out yet. And of course, that's essentially exactly what had happened, in more ways than one. Back in Dallas, Mike starts to notice something's up.
2: The second quarter is when reports started to trickle out. I mean, reporters sit there with Twitter up. Like, you see reports from all the other reporters, and you start seeing stuff that, like, something weird's going on in Oklahoma City.
0: Scrolling through Twitter from that day is completely bizarre. At 6.55 p.m., the Utah Jazz account tweets that Rudy Gobert, one of their players, has been ruled out due to illness. 11 minutes later, they tweet that Rudy is now questionable, but may still play. There are hashtags, #PlayRudy. Rudy. Andy Larson, beat reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune, live tweets the whole thing. Fans are being asked to chant OKC, but something is happening here. We're on the third loop of the Thunder's pre-game music. They're pulling teams off the court in Oklahoma City. Media banned from the locker room hallway. Now referees walking off the court in Oklahoma City. The game tonight has been postponed, PA announces. Everyone has to leave the building. You're all safe, the PA announcer also said. With reporters banned from the team hallway and press room, there's no explanation as to what has happened, but soon reports trickle out.
2: Thank you to Scott and Royce for updating us on the very latest of what is a continually evolving, uncertain and, you know, uneasy situation
3: that we are all dealing with and certainly is now being felt In sports circles, and
2: tonight very directly in our NBA circle. And then finally we get get that it's because Rudy Gobert had tested positive, the Jazz Center.
0: And here's the part of the story that's just simply too weird to believe. A few days before he tests positive, Rudy Gobert is at a press conference. The NBA has already put some limits in about social distancing, the caseloads were rising, but it all seemed ridiculously far from all of us. So, Rudy Gobert jokes around, and then, as he leaves the presser, he touches every single reporter's microphone. There's a stifled laugh in the room. It's not funny. But to be fair, neither were the jokes that I was making whenever anyone coughed. Oh, is that the Rona? Dang, you have the coronavirus. Here's the other part of the story that's just so hard to believe. On March 11th, before the games tip-off, there's a meeting with the NBA owners to decide how they'll continue the season. They all want to play. Some want to play with fans in the stands, some want to play without. Adam Silver, league commissioner, agrees to continue the season in some fashion. But on his way home from the meeting, Silver learns about Rudy Gobert's test report. Adam Silver, commissioner of a league that generates billions of dollars, works for the owners. He's responsible for keeping the league running. He's responsible to make sure that everyone makes money. And suddenly he realizes he has to make a massive decision All on his own. And so, he decides to postpone the season. Except, no one knows yet. Back at the game, the tension just keeps rising and rising. And the players keep playing. On the broadcast, the two commentators keep referencing that this doesn't feel right. That it just doesn't feel worth it. But no one knows how this is going to shake out. Honestly, at this point, I'm not watching the game anymore. I'm watching the clock. I'm watching the faces. I'm listening to Doris Burke, Hall of Fame broadcaster, talk about how she feels and what she's experiencing.
4: And all of a sudden, this
2: game feels somewhat trivial.
0: It's chaos, but the most mundane form of chaos imaginable. And then, finally, At 9.31 p.m. on March 11th, Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN journalist, tweets that the NBA has suspended the season. A quarter of a million people retweet the message. The world is stunned into silence, and then erupts into a frenzy of, oh my god, now what? The game is still going on. And now, a few men and women have to work frantically to capture this historic moment. After the fact, Mike Singer wrote a piece detailing what went into making this broadcast happen.
2: I remember talking to the producer of the game. ESPN was producing a nationally televised broadcast uh, in which a a landmark shift happened in our country. So... They had to prepare. I remember he he used the phrase he felt like we were more a news gathering outlet than, than a, a, about to put on a sports broadcast because they had to think about it creatively. They had to anticipate shots. And one of my favorite things from that story was them getting the news that this league had shut down and then them fixing a camera on on uh, Mavericks owner Mark Cuban and waiting for his visceral reaction. And I mean, I can see it right now. He sees the news and he like cocks his head back. I think he puts his arm on somebody else.
4: And he is floored. He's just completely flabbergasted because it's like, oh my God, they shut down the season. Rudy Gobert has coronavirus.
2: He's like, oh, my God, like he like literally lost his breath. And then he goes and and shows it to some of the players. And that's how, you know, the, the news sort of filtered amongst the Mavericks.
4: It was just the wildest, most surreal moment, craziest game that I've ever, ever watched.
2: This
0: is the part that somehow is just so human and familiar to me. On September 11th, I was asleep when the first plane hit. I had just been laid off, the first dot-com bubble had just popped, and I was supposed to head to my office to pick up my last paycheck. The office was half a block from the World Trade Center, but I slept through my alarm. The night before, I had an argument with my roommate because I had forgotten to do something for him, and I told him, look man, first thing in the morning, you can't tell me anything important. I promise I'll forget it. On September 11th, he woke me up and said, I need you to pay attention. I need you to remember this. I shook myself awake expecting to hear something about an errand I needed to run, and he told me what had happened. We went to the roof. We watched the buildings burn. We watched them fall. And downstairs, delivery trucks kept loading and unloading in my industrial neighborhood in Brooklyn. They call that a flashbulb memory, one you never forget, burned indelibly into your mind. I don't know what happens in Mark Cuban's mind, but I do know that this flashbulb memory is different. This flashbulb will keep burning and burning and burning in the days, weeks, and months to come. But we didn't know that then. All we knew was that something was happening, something new and horrible and historic. And so everyone in the arena began scrambling, the writers,
2: selfishly, how am I supposed to handle this? Because I need to write a story on deadline that's got to be done a minute or two after the game, uh, and yet there is clearly more monumental news that the season is suspended. Who gives a damn about this game?
0: The TV producers.
2: ESPN kept splicing back and forth. They cut to their studio for news updates, then they cut back to two like pros, Ryan Rocco and Doris Burke, who, who handled the game really, really well. They sort of just it was emotional for them. There's this. There's a shot at the end of the game where uh, Ryan Rocco says that if they, if the camera would have stuck on him, they would have teared up um, because it was so scary uh, and just so uh, such a moving scene to see.
0: Even the players who are supposed to be insulated from things like this were affected.
2: In the last like six or seven minutes of the game, both teams started playing really hard. You even listen to the broadcast again and they commented on it too. Doris Burke, Ryan Rocco, they both said, like, guys are going for it, recognizing that this is maybe the last time they're gonna play basketball in a long time.
0: Finally, the game winds down. The players, the coaches, they sort of mill about in a daze, high-fiving, wandering around, a strange look on their faces, as though they finally realize that the illusion is over. It's time to go home.
2: I get home late, it's like 12.31, I'm wired. And I remember just thinking like, man, I cannot believe this diet. One of the seminal quotes that came out of the post-game press conference from the coach was, it was like a movie, and it really was like a movie. The next day, you wake up, you try to recalibrate, you're like, all right. Who knows when basketball is going to come back? What's the immediate future of the team? What does any of that matter? I think I probably woke up early, took a nap that day, just a little bit overwhelmed, tried to process. I called all, everyone. I called my parents. I called everyone. I was like, like I think I, get, I did this interview with all, of, all my friends. <laughs> that was my immediate reaction. Just like reprieve, acknowledgement that there's a lot of work to do. How the hell are we going to do that? No idea. Then take another nap.
0: The world keeps on going. The next day, Julia and I go back to the office to collect our stuff, and somehow, it feels completely different. I notice everything now, the way my hand feels touching the metal on the front door. I wash my hands incessantly. I leave early to pick up my son Diego from school. I don't think about how I'm not going to see Julia for months and months. I don't know yet. When I get to his school, I overhear a third grader say to her little brother, did you hear? We're going to have a two week vacation. I look at my phone. The schools have been canceled. The world keeps turning. On March 14th, Doris Burke can't get out of bed. The broadcaster of the NBA's last game has COVID-19. And then the realization sets in. This is real for all of us. Doris is okay. She'll recover fully and so will Rudy Gobert. But there are two more events that we need to talk about. During the game, Mark Cuban gave an interview immediately after hearing the news about the suspension.
3: What concerns do you have
4: right now for your team?
3: Uh, it's, it's not about team. It's, it's just about you know the country and life in general. You know, I'm concerned about the, you know yes, now that we're not playing games. What about all the people who work here on an hourly basis? You know, we put the, we'll put together a program for them, but. You know, um, uh, there's just so many things that go through your head, right? It's hard to know exactly what's like. Right.
0: On March 12th, the day after the season is postponed, Mark Cuban formalizes that decision. He will pay the salary of every employee in the arena as long as the NBA is suspended. For Sydney, this was no surprise.
4: You know, Mark Cuban is a unique owner in a lot of ways Um, and so his decision after the game to immediately say we're going to take care of the arena workers he said we're going to take care of them we're going to come up with a plan to make sure that they still have their income knowing what kind of person he is it totally makes sense because he just has that nature he's very human he's very relatable Um, in fact it's kind of known that his email address is pretty public it's it's fairly easy to find if you wanted to find it and so one year for our wedding anniversary I wanted to get my husband a, a pretty awesome gift and so I found mark Cuban's email address and I emailed him and I said, you know my husband is a huge Mavericks fan You know, I don't know if there's something you could give, like even if it's just a T-shirt, just the fact that it came from you would be super cool if you could if you could do that. And he responded almost immediately and said, let me know what game you want to go to and I'll give you tickets. Um, And it was just it was just that he responded. It was one sentence, um, didn't make a big deal about it. And he probably does that. You know, for different people, for different reasons. He's just that kind of guy. He's just that kind of owner. He's not always right. And everyone knows about the mistakes that he's made in the past, but he has been a very relatable owner on a human level. And so that decision to take care of the arena workers, that was that was him. That was just the kind of things that he does.
0: Mark Cuban has been and kind of continues to be at the center of a number of controversies. There are continuing reports about a culture of sexual harassment in his organization. He also made news as an early Trump supporter, which is a controversial position for an owner in a league that's 75% black. To be clear, he dramatically reversed his position on the president. But suffice it to say, Mark Cuban is a polarizing character. And in the days that would follow, other owners would not make the same choice that he did. In fact, players step up where the owners won't. Zion Williamson, a 19-year-old on the New Orleans Pelicans, offers to cover their arena workers' salaries. And on its face, that is a wonderful gesture for a rich young man, until you realize that Gail Benson, owner of the Pelicans, is worth $3.3 billion. Zion Williamson is worth $8 million. Eventually, Gail Benson relented and set up her own fund to pay the workers. And look, Zion Williamson could have afforded it, but even if he's the highest-paid player in the league for the rest of his career, He won't come close to the wealth of an NBA owner. But that's not the point, though it's important to note. The point is, the economic impact of the season's cancellation is breathtaking, and it goes well past the arena workers. I think about the people that sell junk outside of the stadium, the knockoff jerseys, the water bottles, the scalpers who we might hate, but how are they going to make a buck now? And then there's this other thought that I have. There's this one guy who used to sit on a pedestrian bridge near Yankee Stadium when I used to go to games. I don't know if he's still around, but that guy used to play a trumpet before and after every game. If I remember correctly, he'd play Yankee Doodle on the way into the game, and on the way back, he'd play New York, New York. When they won, everyone gave him a buck. The rest of the time, it was a bit more catch-as-catch-can. That guy won't get a bailout from anyone. I think about that guy. I hope he's okay. Um, I know there are... Much larger things and a lot larger issues. But personally, what was your impact by this cancellation or the suspension?
2: Uh, it's been super tricky um, because we've had to put out a sports section for almost four months without sports. So every week I wake up and I try to figure out a budget, I try to lay out a plan for how I'm going to fill a newspaper. And a lot of sports reporters were reassigned or, or volunteered to cover the news side, and you know I'm super proud of the, that aspect. Even though, like a lot of people in the media industry, there were layoffs, there were furloughs. I'm currently on furlough for a week. It's a it's a tricky time, but I, I really uh, again I don't have anything to complain about given uh, where some other people are.
0: If, looking back, knowing what you know now, uh, would you have chosen not to go to that game?
2: Huh. I haven't thought about that. Prop? I really don't know. I mean, it was definitely scary, but it was also, I feel like, you know, I definitely feel an obligation to inform and to shed a light and to, you know, sort of uh, explain what's going on with the team. And given how seminal that was, I definitely feel a responsibility to be there. Maybe I would have taken way more precautions. Maybe I would have, maybe I would have been the guy with the mask and the gloves sitting on press row. Now that I think about it, like the buffet line, and everyone was sitting around the tables eating dinner. And, and in Dallas, they have a dessert cart where there's cakes and brownies. Everyone can put their hands on it and grab all the all the crap. And I was like, in retrospect, I'd probably avoid the brownies.
0: Throughout our conversation with Mike, he kept coming back to how proud he was of how the media handled itself. And it reminded me of something that Sydney had to say.
4: So there is, there's a moment in every game that as a fan, on the one hand, you love it. And on the one hand, you hate it. It's whenever it's like, say the last minute or 30 seconds of a close game and this is it. This is winning time. Like, you guys are either going to step up or they're not. It's sort of like this, this moment where you're like in just complete turmoil because you don't know how to feel. You're excited and you're scared at the same time. But it's moments like that whenever you get to see these great players really do what makes them great.
0: There's nothing fun about these past few months, but there is something about what Sydney said that lives with me. The game is defined, life is defined, by moments like these. Do you step up or do you shrink from the challenge? These past four months have been defined by the ways in which over and over again people have stepped up and showed what makes them great, and by ways in which people have showed that they simply don't want to play the game at all. And in some ways, the most confusing part of all of this is how the sporting world was the first to say that this is not okay, that we need to do something. It's confusing, and when I'm confused, I usually call Jonah. He's an activist, teacher, my oldest friend in the world, and the person most willing to talk through something until I finally understand it.
3: I remember, like, thinking, wow, we live in a society in which the sports world is who we follow for decision-making and leadership in the face of a, like, global crisis.
0: When I spoke to Jonah, we were days away from the start of the baseball season and the restart of basketball. Sports were coming back after four months as though to signal that the crisis is over, but it's far from over. In fact, it's only deepened. The virus, police brutality, racial turmoil, desperate inequality, they've all grown worse in these past few months. And Jonah pulled no punches when talking about sports coming back into this moment.
3: It feels more like it feels more like Gladiators. Yeah. Than in a normal moment. But that's because I think everything feels more like what it actually (laughs) is right now than things used to be, right? Like, (laughs) it's always been true that it's absurd that we like watch sports and do sport, like, and not just sports, like, all the things that everybody's like weirded out by now are, it's only because the world is always upside down. (laughs) And right now we've had a moment to like take a breath and say like, wait, we do it that way. What do you mean all the banks own all of the houses? Is that really, does that make sense? Right. Right. And, And that's not, and that's always been true. I don't know. And so this, I don't know, there's this question of like, should I be watching these things? I know how true it is that the uprisings in the wake of George Floyd's death getting the traction that they have is connected to so many things, one of them being people are in a state of outside the normal glaze
0: of just this is how it is. Sports are the opiate. And the sustained demonstrations, the sustained protests, the sustained solidarity, it's because there's nothing else to do but no, that's not true. It's because there's no other distractions.
3: And also, like, look at what's real in the world. Right. You know, there's a real opportunity for this to be a moment of transformation, right? As opposed to a moment of adaptation by the larger structures. And to bring a like a sports analogy, I don't want to give those structures the opportunity to make halftime adjustments and come back, you know, more entrenched, more powerful.
2: I got in touch with um, a Nuggets starter. His name's Will Barton. He he said, "Should players be returning? Is it safe in the middle of a pandemic? And oh, is it?" Uh, the correct thing for perhaps the most front-facing African-American males in the entire country to be taking attention off of the movement that's going on in the country right now and the conversation that's going on in the country right now and go play basketball. Will Barton told me uh, it's time for a revolution. He was fed up, still is fed up with all the police brutality, the racism, the killings. He just threw his hands up. He's like, I don't know what else to say. He wasn't necessarily calling for violence. I need to make that caveat. But what are you supposed to do if you're a a prominent African-American and you see the same thing happening over and over and over again and, and nothing's changing? And yet when Colin Kaepernick tries to protest, peacefully. He's chastised for it. And so that's really what sort of the vein that Will was getting at. And he, he said, it's time for a revolution. A lot of conversations that I think are being had all around the NBA don't pertain to basketball right now.
0: And that is what I'm taking away from the very last basketball game played before lockdown. It shows us, like Sydney described, people at their very best. Adam Silver, Mark Cuban, Zion Williamson, Will Barton, but it also shows us the hardest parts of who we are, the opportunism, the greed, the inequality. And that may be a contradiction, but it can be a productive contradiction. The other day, I watched my first post-restart basketball game. Ironically, a Utah Jazz game featuring Rudy Gobert, the guy at the center of this whole crazy story. But I truly didn't pay attention to the game itself. Instead, I paid attention to what the players wore. Instead of their names on the back of their jerseys, the players wore words like Black Lives Matter and Unity. A white player wore the word ally. And in post-game press conferences around the league, the highest-profile players were refusing to answer questions with any answer other than, we have to arrest the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor. League immortal LeBron James has set up a fund to pay racist fees levied against formerly incarcerated Floridians in an attempt to disenfranchise them from the vote. For years, athletes have avoided making political news. They gave anodyne, media-trained answers to vanilla questions like, Hey, Bob, we're just taking it one day at a time. But that, like so much else, has changed. I don't know how long that will last. I don't know how long any of this will last. I hope, like Jonah hopes, that this is a moment of change, not just adaptation. I hope and hope and hope. My daughter has spent a quarter of her conscious life in quarantine. My son is scared to restart school countless black families are scared for their sons and daughters to just walk down the street nba players are back to work i hope they are safe i hope my parents are safe i hope my brother and sister are safe and i hope your family and you are safe too i hope all the time it's kind of the only thing i can do so i'm going to i'm going to say what i think this season is going to be about um So I think what we're going to do in this season is acknowledge what what COVID-19 has made painfully apparent to all of us, how important inequality is to examine, how important systemic racism is to examine, how important our connections as people are to, to preserve and to honor, and then also to explore all of the things that sports can show us about what we could be, and what we aren't, and, and and what we can learn about ourselves by looking at the last games that were played before all of this upheaval started. Does that sound right for, for the season?
2: Yeah, I, I think in all seriousness, yeah.
0: Okay. Thanks, guys. First Time Long Time is produced by Julia Chen and edited by me, Aaron Wolf. Josh Balgos and Nasia Kamrat are the executive producers. C.T. Trable is our head of production. And Annika Carlson is our intern. You can learn more about the whole team at wearefaculty.com or firsttimelongtime.am, where you can find links to previous episodes. And you can always subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. On our next episode, we're diving into one of my favorite topics, nostalgia and sound. In the meanwhile, I still haven't figured out a sign-off, so see you next time.